Welcome to Progressive Opinions of Color, a podcast that creates space for people of color in conversations about economics, politics, and culture. We're your hosts. I'm Sonia. And I'm Nancy. And this week we have a very special guest on the pod. It's my sister, Anisha. (laughs) Anisha, do you want to give a little background on yourself? Yeah, sure. So I currently live in San Francisco. I've been living here for about two and a half years now. I moved here right after graduating from college and I started my career out at Visa and recently moved um, to an earlier stage startup and have been working there for about a month so far. And in my free time, I like to sing and play the guitar and also love all things fitness. Uh, Recently, I've gotten into road cycling and also love doing yoga in my free time. Okay, well, I think to kick off today's episode, we can first cover the topic that we all can't stop talking about, the Robin Hood GameStop debacle. Yes. Um, yeah. So the Reddit page was a page called Wall Street Bets that had a couple million followers earlier this year, but now is up to like 7 million. And then there was this guy called Deep Fucking Value who years ago realized that this company GameStop was undervalued because he actually dug into the financials, realized that they did have decent cash flow, and that still these hedge funds had over 100% short interest in it. So he has been investing in this for years, and I think just recently he turned it viral. But then what happened last week was because of the volatility, or so Robinhood is claiming, they had to halt trading. And I listened to Elon Musk questioning Vlad, the Robinhood CEO, Sunday night. And Vlad basically said that the reason they stopped trading on GameStop stock is because the NSCC, which is the National Securities Clearing Corporation, demanded a $3 billion deposit from them in the middle of the night because of the volatility of GameStop. And he said they were able to negotiate it down from $3 billion to only $700 million, but his whole explanation lacked transparency. And Elon was trying to figure out how they got to this $3 billion number, and Vlad is saying, oh, there's complicated formulas that aren't public, plus they have these discretionary multipliers. And Elon really caught on to that word discretionary because now it sounds like there wasn't a hard and fast rule. And, you know, there could have been something else at play there. But overall, you know, it really wasn't a convincing argument. And if I was someone who was in this situation who lost money, I would have been really pissed. But I just think that they have no idea how to run a brokerage. It's such a complex industry. And there's been so many reports from employees and analysts that the CEO is just has no idea what he's doing or how to manage this industry. And I think he needs a new PR coach. Yeah, I watched his interview with uh, Chris Cuomo and it was particularly painful. He just used the word prudent like 18 times and said it wasn't prudent at that time to let trading resume and kind of just kept repeating the same thing that there were financial requirements and there was just no transparency from him. And if you're coming on a national talk show, like you can't act like you aren't going to like give your customers the answers to why they weren't allowed to use your app in the way that you said that it's meant to be used in. Yeah, totally. But I think it's important to explain also why we even bring up the possibility that it could be shadiness. And that's because of Robin Hood's history and how they make money. So 
Most of you have probably heard that Robinhood was selling its order flow to Citadel Securities, which is an affiliate of Citadel, the hedge fund. Citadel, the hedge fund, was one of the biggest short sellers of the GameStop stock. And so this means that Citadel Securities was executing the trades placed by Robinhood customers and profiting off of it. But there's more to it than that. So in December, Robinhood paid $65 million in a settlement because they hadn't disclosed to clients that they were selling this order flow to high-frequency traders like Citadel. So this is basically how they were making their money, and nobody knew it. And the reason that it's important for customers to know is because there's a debate that selling order flow can be a conflict of interest for brokers, where getting customers the best price is no longer their top priority. Now, the SEC claims that high-frequency traders have not been getting the best prices for Robinhood customers, costing customers millions even after accounting for the fact that trades are free. So put differently, customers would have come out better trading with other brokerages, even if those brokerages were charging commission. I also think it's important to know that companies that Robinhood sells its order flow to, including Citadel, have been fined by FINRA and the SEC for violations like suboptimal pricing for their customers and trading ahead of customer orders. And for all of these reasons, a U.S. Senator, Carl Levin, has actually been pushing for the Biden administration to ban payment for order flow, claiming it costs people billions each year. And that is probably why some brokerages never sell their order flow to avoid that conflict of interest. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that's what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I like, I did a huge deep dive into them because fun fact, a little over a year ago, I had a super day with Robinhood just before I got the offer for my current job and I didn't get the position and I was pretty bummed about it at the time. But then this past week, after seeing them burn their customers and seeing their CEO fumbling through every interview and the footage of that plane that was flying over their headquarters saying something <laughs> on Robin Hood, um, it was very reassuring that the universe had my back. So <laughs> that's a little background, but I'm also trying to be objective here. No need for objectivity. <laughs> These are our thoughts. But yeah, I'm excited that this news has made ordinary people finally like, want to learn about how the stock market works and what's going on. But first of all, I think Robinhood is unusually popular as a platform for no freaking reason. I don't use it personally, but everyone I know uses it. And I think that's due to really good marketing among millennials, among Gen Z. And that's great because I think there is a lack of financial literacy among our generation when we don't study these disciplines and especially from first generation and immigrant families when your family doesn't have that financial literacy either. And Robinhood as a popular app brings more people to investing. Now Robinhood has done its job. Millennials, people in their 20s who have just made their first paycheck, they are investing and that is great. Now Robinhood can go away because we don't need you anymore. You've done your job. And now if markets are to work as they are supposed to, then we're going to see a lot of Robinhood competitors rise up to the top now because Robinhood has hopefully has lost some of its market share after this debacle. Yeah. The other take that I heard is that Robinhood is maybe not the best platform for trading because even though it is very visually appealing, it also uses a lot of the persuasive technology techniques that are covered in that documentary, The Social Dilemma. 
um, to kind of just keep people on the app. And by that, it means to keep people just trading all day, which for the average person is not great. Yeah. And I feel like Robinhood is kind of hiding behind like a nice user interface that makes it seem really easy for people to invest their money. But there is a reason for some of the complexities that are in place traditionally when you're investing money, because I think you should have a full understanding of what's going on when you actually make a trade or you invest in a stock. Totally. I think some of the skepticism that we saw from boomers around a startup like Robinhood trying to do this might actually be valid in this case because it is such a complex industry and you need to be quite liquid. And I don't think they were prepared for that. Robinhood's goal wasn't necessarily to inform people. It just happened to get a lot of people into investing. But at the end of the day, for the ordinary person who doesn't know much about how stocks are valued or companies, it actually makes the most sense to invest passively, which means putting your income into index funds like the S&P 500 and waiting until retirement to take it out. And that will give you a guaranteed return on average of 6 to 8% minus recessions, minus taxes year over year on average when you take it out by retirement. But what Robinhood seems to be incentivizing people to do seems to be just making people constantly trade, which is going to net out to zero on average. At the same time, like passive investing is not sexy and it's really, really hard to create an app that markets that. I feel like this week we were reminded that stocks are treated as a store of value now and people don't always care about the company that is the underlying asset. Um, Like I feel like this week GameStop reminded me kind of a Bitcoin. It was just, okay, if everyone else believes that this is going to go up and I think I can sell this tomorrow for a higher price than I bought it, why not jump in? So what do you guys think about the future of investing? I don't think stocks correlate to companies' valuations, nor does it correlate to the economy. And it has been misconceived as something that correlates to both. And we see from this situation that like the company GameStop, nothing has changed underlying. Like the company is the same now as it was last year and the year before. It's purely investors and like the news and people's mindsets that makes the stock move. And the same with the economy. It's like, if you believe that the economy is going to do well, then the stock market will do well, but the economy is not doing well. So it's just herd mentality and irrationality at its finest. What are your guys' thoughts on people claiming this was market manipulation by the Redditors? Power to them. (laughs) I don't think it's any different from how hedge funds or investment companies do it. It's just, I mean, the Redditor who started this also like did have reasons to believe that GameStop was going to do well. Anyone who bets on the stock market is guessing on something. No one knows for sure where a company or where a stock is going to go. Not even hedge funds. They do a lot of research, but they don't know for sure. So at the end of the day, it's an educated guess. People don't put their money in things that they don't believe will make a return on them. But when this happens at a mass level, we can call that manipulation when we don't like it, which is like we're just renaming something that other companies and hedge funds have done for years now into market manipulation because normal people are doing it. Yeah. And is it any better than people who do know what's going on and how the market works and still choosing to do what's best for themselves? And I don't think it's that much different. Yeah. And I don't think it's any different from people coming on to Bloomberg or CNBC and just talking up stocks 
And, you know, we've had people like Jim Cramer just screaming about stocks for 20 years now at half of America. And we don't call that market manipulation. He really did scream a lot. He did scream a lot. <laughs> Anisha, like, have your Wait. friends been saying much? Like, what's the, what's the pulse in San Francisco and the tech scene thinking about this? It's really hard to feel like you have a pulse on anything when you uh, spend probably like 95% of your time in your house with your two roommates. But I think like even my roommates who weren't necessarily like that interested in these kinds of things were like, oh, I actually want to understand what's going on. I'm going to learn what shorting a stock is. Yeah. Finance is not as hard as those on the inside want us to believe. One other thing I've been thinking about with this is I'm really fascinated to see what's going to happen with the class actions that have been filed and how they determine damages for retail investors. Because when Nancy and I worked in economic consulting, our company handled these types of cases. And sometimes class actions can drag on forever. But my gut feeling is that Robinhood might settle fairly quickly, hopefully make investors whole who lost on this. Um, and try to save face, especially if they're trying to IPO. <laughs> oh my God, all the new hires right now. Get, if you're graduating in 2021, get ready to do this for your job. Yeah, if I was still working there, I would die for this case. <laughs> okay, the problem is we would be on Robin Hood's side. They pay higher fees. So yeah, I think you should talk about doing dry January. I'm curious on your learnings. It's February now. It's we can February 2nd. How does, how do you feel after a whole month of not drinking minus a few cheap drinks? Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So I started three days before January 1st, which I thought gave me some allowance. So I did have maybe five drinks during January. <laughs> but I actually feel amazing. Granted, this was probably the easiest January in our lifetimes to be dry because everything has been closed. But I think another thing that helped me was reading this book. So Chrissy Teigen has been sober and she recommended Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, I didn't know that since we saw her in Las Vegas. And she no, no, no. Oh yeah, aside, me and Anisha were in <laughs> February before COVID hit and we were five feet away from Chrissy Teigen and John Legend and Anisha just turns around and starts screaming and their bodyguards are looking at us like, oh my God, these girls are going to attack John and Chrissy. <laughs> I was just so excited. I had never been to Vegas before and it was my first time and I saw John Legend, Chrissy Teigen. It was great. <laughs> um. No, Chrissy Teigen's only been sober for, I think, one to two months now. The whole time that she's been wearing that bindi on her head. <laughs> we, can we can talk about this during our cultural appropriation segment. Um, but yeah, she's sober and appropriating Indian culture all at the same time. But she's made this book by Holly Whitaker really famous called Quit Like a Woman. There's a, some really, really good points that are made in the first half of the book. She kind of talks about how... It all started with big tobacco. They basically used their money to influence Hollywood and kind of use tobacco in as many scenes as possible and also infiltrate the women's liberation movement. So big tobacco basically was 
co-organizing these marches in like 1929 and handing the leaders of this movement, cigarettes. And so cigarettes became a symbol of women's liberation saying, hey, if men smoke cigarettes, I can too. And then Big Alcohol copied the same idea and they realized decades later, females were not drinking as much as men. And they, t- they took a very similar approach saying, hey, if you want equality, drink like a man too. And they did a similar thing where they convinced Hollywood to associate so many different things in different scenes with alcohol. If you're sad, you drink alcohol. If you're celebrating, you drink alcohol. If you've been broken up with, you drink alcohol. And it's really just infiltrated every part of our lives. Yeah, I did not read the book or do Dry January, but Sonia told me about this. And then I felt guilty all of January because every time I opened a bottle of wine, I thought about the fact that, you know, there was someone who orchestrated this whole thing where we're all just addicted to alcohol now and think that it's a normal thing to do to open a bottle of wine with your roommates every night. And really it's just because of capitalism. So that really sent me down a spiral that I also probably sent my roommates down. Um, I don't think anyone appreciated it, but it hasn't, yeah, it hasn't, I wouldn't say it's changed my actions, but definitely something to think about. On the other hand, I do think that a lot of societies have been drinking alcohol every day. Not that I'm supporting alcoholism, but just like in China, my dad was talking about how in freaking communist China during the Great Leap Forward when they didn't have any grains or meat because everything was rationed, everyone still made their own moonshine and everyone drank this like Chinese liquor that had 70% alcohol every day to stay warm. So alcohol had other uses in drinking every day, like not as a mechanism to get drunk, um, necessarily, but to add some pleasure to your day-to-day communist life and um, and to stay warm. Those were also reasons. I, I like Nancy's outlook on this. I think I'm going to justify this as adding some pleasure to my capitalist life. Since we're all women in the workplace, in capitalism, <laughs> I'm curious, we're curious, how have your experiences been as a woman in tech, Anisha? I initially worked at a corporation. And I think I didn't think it was particularly diverse. I definitely looked at our leadership and I was like, yeah, there are no women of color, let alone many women in positions of leadership. But I think in my day to day, like in my peer group, you know, typically there was kind of a diverse class and it didn't feel like you were the odd one out. But ever since moving to a startup where I work in sales I think it's been a huge transition and something I didn't realize, you know, that would be such a drastic transition is that most of the clients that I'm actually working with are all male. But I think something that I have found myself kind of like struggling with is, you know, just feeling like if I'm in a room with four other men, feeling like I can speak up and that what I have to say is important. And I think a lot of times I think it's like kind of unfair of myself to pin that on these other people, like this insecurity of mine. Because, you know, there are so many men who I work with and who are out there who really support women and what they have to say. But then, you know, at the same time, when you see corporations or companies time after time without leadership with women in it, you kind of get the idea in your head that clearly like they can't care that much about what women have to say if they're not willing to put them in positions of power. And then also, in addition to that, I think I've just been in situations where I've been in rooms where clearly like men didn't really care what women had to say, like talking over them and things like that. So I think a lot of times those experiences kind of just 
compound to create the situation where you just feel a little bit less comfortable every time you're in this room full of men. But yeah, that's just something that I've noticed more recently. And I think it's tough because it's like partially, I guess, like a personal insecurity, but then also something that it's society that has gotten these ideas in my head and made me feel this way. So yeah, that's something that I have been dealing with. Yeah. When you say it's like a personal insecurity, I think, oh yeah, we can do these things that try to make us feel empowered in a room full of men. But until we're not in a room full of men, I don't think things are going to be too much better. Yeah, that's the tough part. It's like, will like will there ever be a point where you feel totally comfortable in a room full of men? And it's also like, should you feel comfortable in a room full of men? Like, you know, being slightly uncomfortable is almost maybe a good thing to make you feel like you need to be the one who makes things change in your workplace or try to make it a more diverse workplace. That kind of reminds me of the whole girl boss feminism movement where you're trying to succeed despite your circumstances, but that's not sustainable change that's not scalable change my whole problem with the girl boss phenomenon is that it is from the perspective of the individual and not the collective i don't really see that as true feminism because it is about your own success it is about being the most powerful woman in the room and at the end of the day like being a leader in the private sector is still being a leader of an oppressive system and we saw this when Sheryl Sandberg's lean-in feminism kind of died down after that was all the rage because once Sheryl Sandberg joined Mark Zuckerberg in downplaying Russia's interference in the 2016 election, everyone, including Michelle Obama, was like, nope, that feminism is dead. You put capitalism before feminism, before democracy, that's not feminism. I think true feminism is something that creates more freedom for everyone um, and looks at issues that not just impact women, but women who are black and women who are, or trans women and women who are queer and women who are all of those. You're not free until everyone is free. Yeah. And I think another thing that we've been tricked into thinking is that once you call yourself a feminist, every choice you make is you being a feminist. So it's like, oh, I wear makeup. And because it was my choice to do that, that was a feminist action. But, you know, not everything that you do needs to make you a feminist. Like we can acknowledge that some things we are doing just to get by um, and other things we are doing to dismantle a system. Yeah, I feel like you can just do random things and be like, I'm doing this because I'm a feminist. Or I don't know, maybe it shouldn't be something that everyone thinks about for themselves because it is more of a collective thing. I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all complicit in many ways, like having to buy a cheap outfit from H&M some days when you can't pay your bills and knowing that that relies on sweatshop workers who are women from Southeast Asia or whatever, like that is not feminist, but it is a way to survive for many. And it's a very complex issue in terms of day-to-day behavior. Yeah. There was also, so Andrew Nui, the ex-CEO of Pepsi, I remember listening to one of her interviews and she basically just emphasized that like the time sink that it takes to be a woman is also a big part of what keeps women down because the amount of time you spend on your outfits and your grooming and your makeup. And she was saying that like one of the things that helped her become successful is to just not care about that at all. I totally agree. Or like, I think that was definitely the outlook I had for a solid 
two years where I looked like Steve Jobs at my <laughs> at work every day. Like I just, I was like, oh, I look good in a black turtleneck and like light wash denim jeans and I don't have to think about it. And I felt like that was the like outlook I was taking on. And then I realized that I was like, why do I look like this every single day? Um, and I think, I think there to an extent, like obviously you shouldn't have to spend more time on how you look or how you're, well you're groomed. But on the other end of the spectrum, it's like, fashion is an art like it's something a way to express yourself it should be something that like if you want to spend time on it you can and it shouldn't be like something that is looked as frivolous it just comes down to like we can't figure out if we're doing it because we love it or if we're brainwashed yeah (laughs) I have a real question like are we gonna have to wear bras to the office if we ever go back like that (laughs) is something at this point I just don't know how I'm gonna do like I spend (laughs) 90 percent of my time now brawless I like even now when I go out to hang out with friends because it's like why am I going to put on a bra now like it's already 6 p.m and I've already gone my whole day clearly I didn't need that I don't know maybe fascinating differently about my time wearing a bra has not decreased during quarantine maybe I'm doing something wrong it's not Victoria's Secret stocks (laughs) (laughs) bras are dying (laughs) (laughs) yeah I also found that like when I go out to dinner with my friends now, it's cold outside. So you're wearing a jacket. Like you definitely don't need to wear a bra in that situation. Wow. I never thought about that. And I've been eating in a jacket for months now. Sonny, you're fucking up. <laughs> it's more uncomfortable for me to like not wear a bra. No, that's fair. I feel like this is the kind of thing that it's like everyone's choice. Yeah. It's like boxers or briefs. Like who the fuck cares? We should just do whatever. <laughs> I think something else that is not necessarily feminist is when it stomps over and impedes someone else's culture for profit. And I think cultural appropriation is one of the key examples of that. Like we're all down for women-owned businesses nowadays, but a lot of these businesses, when they're appropriating the cultures of people of color, it's not necessarily great. And it's not necessarily quote unquote feminist. And there's a lot more to dig into on that. So for example, we all remember in New York when this white woman opened up some restaurant for her healthy quote-unquote Chinese food and was going to market Chinese food as something that was first of all unhealthy and she rebranded it as healthy and it was like okay don't add stereotypes to a food that's been around for 5,000 years that has so many different cultures like and Chinese food itself is such a broad topic there's like thousands of cuisines within Chinese food so what the hell are you talking about first of all but nowadays there's so many wellness influencers and wellness brands like adaptogens all these Chinese herbal medicines and like that and East Asian and South Asian medicines, traditional medicines that have been used for centuries that are now coming up in all these like female owned businesses and female owned podcasts and like women influencers and entrepreneurs are all talking about them. So I have a lot of annoyances with this because I love listening to all these self-help podcasts. It's a guilty pleasure. Um, And I've been trying to look for more ones run by people of color because I'm tired of white people running these podcasts and only inviting white guests and white business owners to talk about their products. And I'm tired of everyone talking about like the freaking four sigmatic mushrooms and the Rishi mushrooms that are supposed to be really great for your adaptogens or whatever the hell that means that freaking Chinese people have been using for centuries. I've been hearing so many white people talk about these mushrooms lately. Yeah. The mushrooms, turmeric comes from ginger, which Asian cultures have been using for centuries matcha basically anything that's popular nowadays came from some herb that the other side of the world has been employing for thousands of years 
And now we found a way to like profit off of them. Um, and yoga. Yeah. On the turmeric thing, I grew up drinking turmeric milk as just a way to boost immunity. If you ever start feeling sick, you always go to that. Some people just drink it every day in Indian culture. And now there are $7 turmeric lattes being sold in New York. So yeah, I also like, I guess on like the topic of yoga, like I find myself just being extremely confused whenever I go to yoga classes. I'm just like, are there no Indian yoga instructors in the city of San Francisco? Are there no other people of color who teach yoga? Because I I used to go to this one studio in the mission that I absolutely loved. Like I thought the instructors did an amazing job and it's like, clearly they know a lot about, you know, the history of yoga and like, they know it very well, but it's just, it's still a little bit disconcerting that there's just no instructors at the studio who are Indian or just non-white. So I think, I don't know, I, I, I struggle with it because I think it's like, if you want to learn about another culture and, you know, that's something that you're really passionate about and there's a specific thing that you really love and you want to teach others, like, I think that is great. And that's like a great way to make people learn more about other people and just kind of connect different cultures and things like that. But it does just feel like it's very exclusionary and that it doesn't make sense that in a city of 700,000 people, it's so hard to find a yoga class taught by an Indian person. And to add to that, They also take the spiritual and religious aspect of it and add it to the class, which it's complicated because yoga is holistic. It's not just movement. There is a spiritual aspect to it. But when white people start singing and butchering spiritual songs, it really, really triggers me because growing up the child of Indian immigrants you were so otherized for all of these types of things. And then to see white people do it completely wrong in front of other white people that have no idea what's going on in this monetized situation is wild. Yeah, I think that's the other crazy part. It's like $30 for a class where you sing things that like you don't know the meaning of. And like, to be fair, I don't know what the fuck I was singing either. Like I didn't understand anything, but it was really bizarre to me that everyone felt like this is the way they should be spending their time and money. And I just think that if an Indian person told you to do it, you wouldn't be doing it. I feel like people would pay more too for to go to white yoga instructors than something that was started by like an old Indian woman who actually like learned it maybe in India who had her own thing. Absolutely. But I have been trying to get into more women like of color based products and who actually understand and respect the culture of where these products come from. And I've been listening a lot to this podcast called Balanced Black Girl and it's super good. She always has a guest, like Black-owned businesses, Black-owned adaptogen brands who like have researched the history of adaptogens and mushrooms, for example. Um, but that's like one of the only podcasts I've found that's really big and it's amazing. Everyone should check it out. Um, but yeah, listeners out there, if you guys have any recommendations of holistic health and wellness podcasts or brands owned by people of color and women of color, please take a screenshot of this podcast episode and tag POC podcast on Instagram and tag that other podcast so that we can get to know them. Yeah. I have a question on what you just said then. Do you think it's more acceptable when people of color take from each other's cultures? 
First of all, I think anything that gives credit to the place that it comes from and sources from the original place is not necessarily appropriation. So, and these are, there's a lot of debate over this, but I think like, for example, if a white person wanted to supply like matcha, but they employed Japanese people on their team of leadership and they sourced their matcha specifically like directly from Japan and paid the cost to these companies and promoted those companies as they're making their matcha back to the U.S. and giving a high, like a reasonable portion of their profits back to those companies. And they're still supporting where these products have come from and include that history and culture aspect into it. Then I don't care like necessarily who owns it as long as they're doing the due diligence and the work of giving back. I feel like I like black owned businesses who do this because black owned businesses are more likely to because they experience appropriation and they understand it and would like to do the same back. And a lot of these things, like, I mean, at the end of the day now, like matcha and a lot of these, these Eastern medicine ingredients don't really belong to any particular culture anymore. They're just herbs that have existed on this earth for centuries and are now grown everywhere. So the question of ownership is still kind of nebulous when it comes to a lot of these product marketing. I think with things like Native American headgear, that's more specific to a culture. And that's really easy to see when it's being appropriated. But with food, it's really complicated. How did you feel about the Mahjong product that came out founded by, I think, three white women? Oh, my God. First of all, I think that's just dumb. The whole personality test, like, oh, which fucking Sex in the City character are you? I don't even know. Anyway, I think it's dumb. I didn't realize they were tied to specific celebrities. That's crazy. They had like, I saw this whole, like this post where they had like a take a quiz to like find which one, what's that suits you most? Are you more of a this person or that person? And I was like, oh, they didn't do any due diligence. They didn't even mention the word China in in their website or their product when it first came out. And it was just like pictures of white women and no woman of color in there either. It was like, this product is by white women for white women. And yes, I get that things similar to Mahjong have been played by white people only after being introduced to them from China. Before ships were built, white people didn't organically come up with Mahjong. It's called Mahjong. Those are Chinese words. (laughs) The culture owns this. Yeah, and the description was really strange because they were basically saying that this founder, she like didn't see her personality reflected in the Mahjong sets. And you're like, yeah, they weren't made for you. Yeah, it's a it's a strange thing to say. And you're just like, how do you think everyone else feels? And media and products that weren't made for that. <laughs> That is the most entitled shit ever. Oh my God. Wow. These Chinese characters on the, these Mahjong sets. I don't see myself in this. <laughs> yeah. Did you not realize that this came from a different culture? I don't think she realized that when she created this product because she literally thought that Mahjong like came from white people because she was like making white people Mahjong. It's not white people Mahjong. <laughs> There's no such thing as white people Mahjong. White people play Mahjong, sure, but it's not white people. I don't, I don't, I can't. <laughs> Basically, this is the plight of every person of color, but then white people flipped it and were like, we don't see ourselves here. I'm trying to, what's a good product that we could take and make Indian and then sell it for more money? I don't know. If Literally nothing, because nobody wants to buy stuff from Indian people. They want to buy yeah, Indian white people. I guess that's why it's appropriation. Okay, got you. Yeah, <laughs> cool. 
People don't even want to pay more for Chinese food. When Chinese Americans open up restaurants in New York City, Hall's Noodles is one of the new restaurants where they charge like $30 for a plate of noodles. And people are like, what the hell? Chinese noodles are supposed to be $10. Even I went in there and I was like, wait, I pay like $8 or less for this in Chinatown. No, $5 for this. Why is it $30? And then I was like, you know what? We don't think about this for Italian food. When we think about Italian food, pasta is freaking cheap. Tomato sauce is cheap. All of these ingredients are cheap. Why do we feel okay paying $30 for pasta, but not for Chinese noodles? That's so true. And then I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to pay $30 for this. <laughs> I'm going to just keep doing this until I get used to it. But at the same time, that's like capitalism talking as well. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like people like will pay more for white things and European things, but not for Asian things. Right. Long. Yeah. I feel like sometimes the excitement of buying Asian things is how cheap it is. Like, oh, I have a great dim sum recommendation. We got golden unicorn on Sunday and it was 10 dim sum items for $43. Golden unicorn is so good. Oh, if you see something in Whole Foods and you think, oh, what a great product. I should maybe buy this. Check out Nine and Nine Ranch or Chinese grocery store first, that brand, and it's going to be better and it's going to be way cheaper. And you're going to be supporting those suppliers from the Chinese grocery stores. For example, there's this yogurt drink, like the kind of little yogurt probiotic drinks that People put in soju and they cost 79 cents a pack for like five of them in Chinese grocery stores and Korean grocery stores and Japanese grocery stores. And I saw them sold at Whole Foods under a different brand called BioK or something. They're like probiotic yogurt drinks and they were $35 for the same amount. It just yeah. blows my mind. It's insane. That's such a good pro tip. Yeah. Produce is so much cheaper at the Chinese supermarkets by me. The other day I got two avocado and like three sweet potato for $3. And the quality is good too. Yeah. It's a great way to support local businesses and save money. And the Chinese grocery stores in Chinatown in Manhattan and in New York City, they're cheap because they also like get their supplies from local farmers in New Jersey. So that they're local businesses, they have special connections with them and you get the price too so you get everything anisha what are some of like your passions in the past i think my outlook on like spending time on hobbies like for example like singing and playing the guitar is something i love doing but i always had this feeling that like i was kind of wasting my time it wasn't my job i wasn't like making money from it or i wasn't like out there trying to write songs and like make an album or something um but i think we've all tried to kind of like take this outlook that your hobbies truly should not be about that at all and it, like it's not a waste of time if you can't like profit off of it which for some reason i feel like i always kind of have this feeling that i'm like not being productive when i'm spending too much time like listening to music or just singing or things like that so i guess that's something that i've been trying to like hold myself more accountable to doing is just things that i truly enjoy um but yeah, that's my rant on hobbies. Anything you enjoy doing is not a waste of time. It's time well spent. Totally. And I think when you do try to monetize things, sometimes they become less enjoyable. Yeah. I feel like doing things that you love without monetizing them is a radical attack against capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like it's kind of like a radical attack against capitalism. But then at the same time, my insecurities make me feel like, oh, that's not good enough at it if you can't monetize it. 
that's capitalism talking. (laughs) (laughs) Our parents didn't feel like that when they were like doing fun things and not profiting off of them in like China and India (laughs) back in the days. Oh my God, my mom said when they slaughtered sheep for food, like once a winter, one of the bones that they used that they didn't use for soup was like the knee joint of a sheep and they would just like kick it around. And she was like, it was the most fun ever. (laughs) And I was like, that's great. (laughs) Y'all were so fucked. (laughs) Communism isn't perfect either, guys. For all those (laughs) Marxists out there. (laughs) I listened to a podcast today where this guy was like, my prediction is that there's not going to be corporations in the future because everyone is going to be their own brand. And I was like, <laughs> and he was like, no one wants to work for a corporation. Now everyone is having their side hustle. Everyone is marketing their self, their image on social media, their website, their podcast, their blog, their music. Everyone is their own entrepreneur. And no one wants to work for a large corporation anymore. So this is the future. This is where we're headed. I'm like, wow, that's just one form of capitalism into another. It's not even like Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard similar ideas where like the corporation will be extinct and it'll be like organizations of like 10 people max. But what would be wonderful is if you combine this with communism. And so we reached a state of abundance in terms of like food and resources. And then you could just do what you want on the side and then like the monetary aspect of it wouldn't matter. There has to be like socialist provisions no matter what, because even if you're an influencer on social media, the way that social media works, like the more followers you have, the more followers you get. When you're already famous, when you're already rich, you are going to have more followers. You can buy them or because you just know them. That power gets you followers. Money gets you followers. Not having either, you have to start from the bottom. And that takes hard work. And hard work has a lot of luck involved. And the algorithms are all against you in the very beginning. So it's still the same cycle. It's like money and power will get you far in both and will make you have to work hard if you don't have it. So like, what's Wait, so we're, we're all going to be influencers competing against each other. We're all going to be our own brand. So <laughs> your personality is your brand. We get to be ourselves. We no longer have to pretend to be someone else at work. We can just be ourselves. And whatever idea of the self is the most trending in that moment is going to be the people who are profiting the most in that moment. And then that, we're all going to have to not be able to be ourselves again, because we have to pretend to be someone else in order to make money in this influencer only world. So I think it's all just going to turn into the same thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that sounds stressful and not any better than where we're at right now. Because it's like, yeah, in one sense, maybe you can be more yourself, but you're going to be whoever the person that is most monetizable is. And so probably not (laughs) exactly yourself. Yeah. I take such issue with people being brands. And that's even why I've been like grappling a lot with what we're trying to do with the podcast here because humans are so complicated and for you to brand yourself as just this fixed set of ideas or principles or whatever, I think does everyone a disservice and it just takes away nuance from everything. Everything should have nuance. That's why even for this podcast, a lot of our guest interviews have challenged progressive ideas and I like it that way because I don't want to just be an echo chamber of progressive ideas over and over again that other progressive people have already said. But here's the other thing. Do you guys think that we gravitate towards people who are less nuanced, who we can always kind of predict what their take is going to be on an issue or something like that? I personally don't, but I think people have a tendency to like being with people who are similar to them. Because I feel like some of the people that I follow or follow their podcasts, like with some of them, I can always guess what they're going to say about a current event. Like, 
you know their ideology, you know what they're going to say. But I think it's a lot more interesting when people approach everything from scratch. Yeah. I also think it's tough though. Like for example, if you're listening to someone who has a cast that kind of covers everything, like it's hard to be nuanced on every topic. Like I think you, it does require like some level of expertise. So if you're listening to these people who are like, you know, just covering a lot of things, like you can't have a super specific, you know, outlook on or point of view on something that maybe you don't have like all the knowledge about. Yeah, definitely. You kind of have to become like a thinker in that space. And that takes a lot. I also feel like nothing is truly objective or not influenced by anything else. The New York Times claims to be unbiased. Mm -hmm. and not. It's not. Like, it is just... (laughs) It's just not. Like, privileged intellectual left-leaning liberals who think that they're better than everyone else. But like, yeah, I mean, when I listen to The Daily sometimes, Michael Barbero or the guest says something that I don't expect. And I'm like, cool, I learned a different perspective today. Other times I listen to Trevor Noah and I'm like, okay, like I want, I listen to Trevor Noah when I want to laugh at the left, the right and like feel sympathy for those being on the left. I'm not listening to Trevor Noah waiting for his hot takes on like counter example or like devil's advocate or whatever. I'm not here for that when I listen to Trevor Noah. So it really depends on the source. That's a good point. But I love Shenan Democrats. I think Democrats are terrible. I think Democrats are like just as bad as Republicans. And we can talk about that too in another episode. Into our next episode, why Democrats are just as bad as Republicans. Would you say just as bad or, or almost as bad? I would say even worse sometimes. Democrats know what they're trying to do. And so many times it's just performative. And Democrat politicians are so freaking evil sometimes. They're appropriating issues of like, the working class and people of color for their political platform when they actually don't care. Ugh, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. A lot to dive into next time. I like Bernie Sanders. (laughs) (laughs) Don't cancel us. (laughs) Progressives are not Democrats, but they do vote Democrat. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Thank you, Anisha, for joining us in this episode. We are new into our new season with Sony as our co-host and have lots of new episodes coming up every week. So make sure to stay tuned and make sure to follow us on Instagram and tag us. Be sure to rate, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. Be sure to write a five-star review and leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us as a podcast get discovered. And we'll see you in the next episode.